0: Paula Morantz-Cohen is a professor at Drexel University. She's the author of many books, including Of Human Kindness, *What Shakespeare teaches us about empathy, and Alfred Hitchcock, uh, uh, The Legacy of Victorianism, and the popular novel. She's written several fiction works, the popular novel Jane Austen in Boca. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Her new book is Talking Cure, an essay on... The civilizing power of conversation—that's our topic today. Let's have a conversation about it. Welcome, Professor Cohen.
1: Thank you so much, much Mark. I'm glad to be here.
0: Uh, now we we begin. You 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 have a quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw. You like it? It it says, "But it's horribly lonely not to have someone else talk sometimes." Now we're usually told of the necessity of finding someone who will who will listen, but you actually find the search for a good a good conversationalist, pretty darn valuable too, and for deep emotional and existential reasons, don't you?
1: I do, and I feel it really takes me out of myself at times. Um, I guess I'm ultimately a somewhat depressive person, uh, Mm -hmm. at least when I'm alone. Uh, Even as a baby, my mother used to say that um, I would cry when I was alone, but as soon as people came in and interacted with me, I became... Cheerful, and I think that's continued. Mm. That when I'm engaged with another person in talk, I forget myself, and it feels good. It feels happy.
0: I I I agree. <laughs> I understand. And you do it for now, a
1: living, right? You yeah,
0: you will. yeah, yeah. And I I I prefer to listen to talk. I I, I really do. <laughs> so uh, now you you actually um, open with a description of your family background, which includes uh, the kinds of conversations that you would have with parents Mm -hmm. and with siblings. And one thing you note there, it's interesting that because of different positions that each one occupied relative to you, the conversations necessarily differed. Is this always the case that that conversation has, full, full conversation? has conditions, uh, certain pre-existing roles that that people have?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Dr. Johnson and maybe Montenya as well said that great conversation happens between equals, but the question of what an equal is, is open to discussion. I do think in a family, um, you're not the equal of your parents, so it's a different kind of conversation. And in a way, at least initially, you're not the equal of your siblings because you come into the family at different times and have more experience. So I have one sister who's younger than I am, and she and I have a close relationship, but I think we had to work on that because I was the older sister and she was the younger one. And so there was a a sort of a power dynamic there that had to be overcome. But I think in 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 a daily life with other people, um, one tries to find people with whom one has a really reciprocal, equal relationship, and that makes for the best kind of conversation
0: yeah d- you know you you mentioned there's a lot of literary reference in 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 the book, and you you just made some uh, a moment ago uh did Did the conversationalist impulse or the you know the loneliness? that that you you felt without conversation, did that even push you into the the literary studies world, the novels? Oh,
1: I think absolutely. Um, It's funny, though. My mother, who was an only child, and I don't write this in the book, but it recurs to me as you ask me, she used to say, my books were my friends. This was a, a motif of my childhood. My books were my friends, so that whenever she felt lonely or left out, or didn't have a date, or whatever, she could always read a book, or particularly a novel. And I would say that I was one of these young girls who read novels particularly voraciously, and they were a way, again, of escaping into perhaps a little bit of a fantasy relationship with the characters, Uh, but also I think it was very nurturing. It was a good way to learn Um, about how to interact well. I mean, I'm a big Jane Austen fan as many people now are and I feel that she models a certain kind of um, social world and social interaction that we could have more of and I think it would be healthy to have more of this mannerly interaction socially prescribed to some extent, but to some extent with a great deal of improvisation possible. And yes, I learned that from reading novels and I still love to read, Le- read fiction and write fiction as well.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, Paula, what one of the things that, that concerns me is that young people don't read as many novels as they used to. And we've seen what happened, what, what's happened with English major enrollments. <laughs> the trend is is down, but just generally... You know, when I when I was young, and and it sounds like for you too, you would read these novels. These characters, they would be really speaking. You would really hear them. And so then, when you're sitting with a book, in a chair by yourself, and it's quiet, you're actually in a very uh, often noisy world, uh, <laughs> and you can hear those words bouncing around your head. And and uh, you know, reading is overhearing conversations between a lot of these characters, between the author uh, talking to you uh, about. What is going on? I, you know, one hates to see that the the decline of that teenage reader, you know, who, who yeah. could and I, I don't mean it doesn't have to be classics, right? Uh, I mean, I'd read, you know, detective stories, adventure stories, you know, sports biographies. Those that, that, that are the kind of stuff.
1: Romance that, that, novels, whatever. I agree <laughs> with you. Absolutely, Mark. And I do see a decline, I, a decline because of a number of things. There's social media that is, uh, you know, training uh Uh, young people to not have much of an attention span. No. Yeah, and then there's also just, um, I think, the pressure of life um, that is such, I I see it among my students, they don't have that time, that luxury, I don't know why that is, but they don't, to sit down with a novel and lose themselves in a novel.
0: What, what, What a great moment it is to go to bed at night and have that book and the world kind of goes away you know yeah. the day is over and it's mine this is my little 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 space I I I I think that it's, it's just terrible that a, a lot of t- teenagers they just jump on that phone that keeps them awake at night and you're right it's not conversation that no. that, that they're engaged in so uh, yeah, yeah. I
1: just want to add one more thing to what you just said which is when you've read something substantive, and, you know, by that I mean not necessarily deep, but that has a narrative, you know, that has some sustained narrative, you also yeah. have something to talk about. And that, you know, that was what we did. Um, we would read books, and then we would discuss them. And one of the things that I find distressing, you know, the canon, uh, the traditional canon has been sort of dismantled as being oppressive in various ways. And I understand some of that critique. But having some group of works, it doesn't even matter what they are, <clears throat> that everybody has read, that they then can talk about is so important to what a college experience should be.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no we need a common reading lists. Yeah. Uh, you know whatever and you know the the diversity thing I think it 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 broke one thing up but it didn't consolidate something else. Right. And and that this is this is a problem. The the title of your book uh, talking cure that comes from Freud. What does that signify?
1: Well, Freud who I I really love to read. I mean, he was an incredible stylist as well as a groundbreaking thinker. He was. Um, he's been somewhat discredited in Psychological, psychoanalytical circles. Although I think there's some comeback to him, but talking cure referred to his notion um, that uh, the patient talks under the guidance of the physician or the uh, therapist, and in the process recognizes is able to see what what is behind some of the symptoms. The the Uh, psychological symptoms that uh, are ailing him or her. And uh, the more there's talk, the more there's revelation about the self. And it is more or less, it's a one-way street because the therapist prompts and listens and the patient talks. But it nonetheless is, is a good model in the sense that it's about healing something, which I think conversation does. And also, it creates a bond uh, between the therapist and the patient that I think can be translated into what one feels with other people when one talks with them. The, the idea of transference, which I discuss, is that illusion that one has of falling in love with your therapist and tra- counter transference, falling in love with the patient. Um, I take that out of context and say there is a feeling you have when you're in a good conversation with someone of sort of falling in love with them. And that's a wonderful feeling. And I've had it with a class as well as an individual. When teaching a good seminar, everyone has this feeling of affection um, that I I think is so uplifting and um, really makes, uh, for me, teaching worthwhile.
0: You you know, uh, isn't it a great... Experience, Paula. When you've got a class, probably usually a small class. I I, I probably necessarily where, but you really feel like you're all together. Absolutely, you're all. You, everyone is on board, and 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 there there's continuity, and they're all in, and they. Yeah. I, I think they end up kind of pushing one another to, to to do the reading, to 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 stay with the the rest of the class. I one one class I had, you know, one one of the guys worked as a waiter. Yeah, and there were only seven or eight students in this in this undergraduate class there at Emory, and you know he said, "You all c- come on, we got to go to dinner at this nice restaurant where I work at, and I'll I'll be I'll be your waiter, and then sit down and everything." It was a very nice conclusion to the term, but I think that that there was the conversational side of it. It wasn't just about the class, the grade, you know, the the achievement. It really was about we're in a collective reading talking, uh, activity. I agree. I
1: I think that is when learning takes place, when the students forget in a way that they're in a classroom and they're really bonding with each other and enjoying the act of learning on such a level that it's not about, you know, proving themselves or the grade or anything along those lines. And that doesn't happen all the time. You know, I don't know about you, as a teacher, I think I say that it happens where you have this merger, this wonderful uh, feeling, maybe once in every five classes now, and I've been teaching for a long time. Um, So you'd think maybe it would be more, but I'm happy if it happens at all. But it doesn't happen all the time because it's, it's magical. It really is. And the other thing that's great about it, and that's why I connected to some of the problems we're having in this country, is that when this happens, people can disagree, and they can actually have very different political positions or perspectives, but everyone has goodwill. And so it becomes possible to listen to each other, and maybe incorporate some of what the other thinks into one's own point of view.
0: Yeah. Uh, you turn. I mean, you you know, we, we could talk a little bit about about the therapeutic side of of conversation, the transference, how how the Freudian concept of transference comes into play. But but if you want, but you you do then turn to Kant, <laughs> which which gets into some some of the ethical things you hinted at for a moment uh, for added value to conversation. And you bring up his idea, the categorical imperative. What was that idea and how does it apply here?
1: Well, it's the idea that you do not use another person um, as a means to an end, or at least not only that, but as an end in, in him or herself. And that idea of seeing the humanity in another person, as opposed to their using them, so to speak, to, to, to achieve something, whether it's get a job or get a good grade or uh, you know, impress or whatever, is uh, I think we've become very uh, utilitarian in that way in our society now, and students have been geared to figure out how to best uh, sell themselves, brand themselves, and so forth, and that is probably an unhealthy way of thinking, and it does go against the grain of this kind of conversation where everybody sort of feels that everyone else is valuable, whatever their opinions are, and they're not thinking about how they can use them or how they come across or any of those sorts of things that are so much a part of social media, for example, now. Um, and influencers and so forth. So I'm, I'm going against the grain of what I think our society generally is about. Um, uh, you know, we need to counter that because I think to be a healthy democratic society, um, we need to, to treat each, each other with humanity and see each other's humanity. And that seems to have dissipated a bit in recent years.
0: Yeah, In what sense is conversation, you say by definition, improvisational?
1: Um, Yes, it has to be improvisational because you never know what the other person is going to say. I think I compare it to sport, uh, team sports maybe, or uh, where you have to – Uh, respond it's not necessarily team sports I guess it could be one-on-one you know playing tennis or whatever what the other person does but there isn't I it differs from sport in that it's there's no winning or losing Um, that's how it it's different from debate or argument um, where somebody might say be said to win the argument I think here there's no winning or losing and it is improvisational and you have to be able to be improvisational. And some people feel more comfortable with that than others. But I do think it's something that with practice you get better at. So it's the more you do, the, the better you get at dealing with surprising. And you want surprise in conversation. Yeah. If, it's this, if it's what you expect, then it's boring.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah, and and what I would emphasize because I, I I like that section a lot is that improvisation is not simply you know running off in any direction. It's not. It's not just oh I'm going to say this. Improvisation actually is is part of the art of of conversation. In the same way, you know, in jazz, yeah. improvisational players always have sort of the standard. Regular or ordinary line in in the back of their heads, right? You're improvising. You're improvising off of yeah, something, I, and and so it, it's actually it's it's not just sort of a natural thing that you you have to practice improvisation, right? Practice conversation to learn to to improvise, right?
1: I I agree, and I I was talking to a musician about this, and and he was saying that sometimes in jazz, you know, you can have Competition among the people playing, um, but the best kind of performance he feels is when there isn't competition. But this in- again, it's sort of like what we were saying about the classroom, where everyone is, uh, you know, on the same page uh, emotionally, so to speak, and yet Im- improvising and changing uh, in response to the other. So it re- it involves listening very closely. To the yeah. other person in order to do this well. So it's not just about talking, it's also about listening.
0: Now, when you you turn to art and literature in your discussion, you say that it, it's actually nearly impossible in in art or literature to impart the full experience of of conversation. You you really have to do it you you can't watch conversation from the outside and really understand it you've got to get involved you've got to practice it uh, and how do i guess maybe may, maybe the issue is a lot of young people have a hard time entering into the conversation insecurity or or you know they like they lo- they maybe they've gotten too accustomed to the mediation of the screen Right, the, the the keyboard, but <laughs> they're really missing something, aren't That's
1: they? That's such. Uh, you know, I didn't say this in the book. I think um, students maybe you know they've been trained to be more passive, given our our visual culture. So they watch television or they watch movies, and they're on the outside, but being. In, although you could say that they're they're interactive when they're doing video games and so forth, there's a little bit of that, and I probably should have discussed how how that might be have a, an uh, a resemblance to conversation. But m- my point is that I can try and represent conversation, but uh, it's not going to be able to capture the feeling of being inside of it, and. Yeah. Um, you have to be engaged to know what I mean. And so I can talk till I'm blue in the face about how wonderful it is. If you don't do it, you don't know it. Um, I guess the closest is to read a, read a book, as you said, and to feel yourself inside the, the narrative. Um, yeah. But again, that... And, and I think of somebody like Montaigne, who I mentioned before, who had this close friend uh, who died... And then wrote his essays, his famous essays that are very conversational. And I feel that it's his attempt to recreate or to have that friendship, which is lost to him, but Hmm. still cannot. Because he says in his essays that conversation is the greatest joy and the greatest gift. But he's writing this. So in a Hmm. way, he's already, you know, fallen out of that ideal form.
0: There was a movie that I remember when it came out. It was really popular, but it was just, it was an unexpected hit. This My Dinner with Andre. Uh, two guys sitting at a, at a table, uh, you know, in a, in a restaurant talking. What a bore, right? I mean, who in the, who in the world would, would want to invest? Who would want to produce the, this kind of film? But it was a big success. Why, why did this thing work? It's just, it's a conversation. And it's, it, you you actually say it's one of the best attempts. To show a real conversation take taking place, any insights we take from that film? Why why did it why did it work so well?
1: Well, I don't think it worked for everyone, but uh, my dinner with Andre was actually a very scripted film, and they hmm. they practiced it quite a bit before it was filmed, and um, I think though they had an idea about conversation that they represented in what for many people did not seem like a particularly uh, plot-driven or uh, interesting way, but which once you, I think, start thinking about it, you realize that they're showing how somebody can become engaged. And this is the Wallace Shawn character. Uh, Andre Gregory, it's two people, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn, those are the real people and they go by their real names. Andre Gregory was, uh, I don't know if he's still alive. He was a director um, and uh, quite a wealthy man. And Wallace Shawn at least uh, represents himself as sort of a down-and-out, little bit of a schlub writer. Um, And Andre has invited him to dinner at a very fancy restaurant and uh, Wally takes the subway, this is New York City, to go to the restaurant. He feels ill at ease. Um, it's it's elegant, and the food is copious, and w- there's wine with the meal. And they, Andre starts talking about his life and what he's searching for meaning and very exotic adventures and so forth. And mm-hmm. Wally, it's all very alien to him, but he says yes, and he asks questions but at some point he begins to relax and he becomes involved, he pushes back, they, they truly engage. And at the end you feel how happy both people are in having connected. Mm. And they had connected over this really good food in this beautiful setting, which I think is meant to be helpful because it creates um, comfort on a high mm. level that allows Wally to relax and feel that he can contribute. And it's, I think, a really masterful, uh, maybe somewhat stylized, and humorous. There are moments of humor there are. Uh, that make it easier to go down. But it's, it's a fun movie, in a way, if yeah. you approach it in the right way.
0: It must have been one of the most inexpensive films to make.
1: <laughs> well, except for The Meal right <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. yes. yeah, I don't I, I can't remember the wine they were they were I don't know if it was uh if it was a, a, a Lafitte or or maybe or or just you know who knows all but, I
1: know is that Wally at the end does order an amaretto as a mm-hmm. after dinner drink and even though uh, uh his host does not order anything he feels comfortable enough to say, well, I'll have an amaretto please, and you feel that he's now entered into the spirit of the place,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have, I have a side question on that, uh, that always comes up. Why is it that so many restaurants blast <laughs> such loud music that it makes conversation practically impossible? What, 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 Why can you, can you please answer that for me?
1: <laughs> I don't know because I actually addressed that. I don't understand it. It drives me crazy. And I'm the one oh. who's always saying to the waiter, can you ask the manager to turn down the music? Some, <laughs> I'll ask. They always say I'll ask.
0: Right, right, sometimes right. They
1: do, and sometimes they don't. But yeah. it's it's nerve wracking to sit and not be able to hear each other. But maybe it's because people don't want to talk. I mean,
0: that's I what I, I think do yeah, it's uh, loud music and and drink saves them the the uh, the trouble of genuine genuine interaction. I, I, I'm worse. Uh, my, my poor son, I embarrass him because I say, can you please turn that awful music down? Anyway. Oh, uh, so, do I just uh, I turn
1: it down because my, my daughter <laughs> would probably not not be happy if I said
0: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, now, now, yeah. In, you, you have a chapter called Bad Conversation and y- you actually lay, lay out some very interesting personality types that, that, that ruin... The 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 exchange G- give us a give us well the true believer what is wrong with the true believer?
1: Well, any true believer is going to feel that whatever you say against their position um, is wrong, and that will not make for a good conversation. Whether it's a Freudian, for example, who would say if you disagree, then you're repressing something. <laughs> Or a Marxist, for example, who might say that you're in the thrall of capitalism and therefore you can't possibly know. And yep. I think now we're in a position where either on the right or on the left, there's a tendency to feel the other person is wrong and lacks virtue. And you know that's a very hard thing to counter. You don't want to be seen as a bad person. And if there's failure being seen as a bad person, it really stifles conversation.
0: There's another phenomenon that you discussed there, not group think, but group talk. What is group talk? It's one word, group talk. Yes. What is that? I
1: think I made it up because I think you see more often group talk than group think, although it can turn into group think. Group talk is when everybody feels compelled to say the same thing. And you see it among students in particular because they're uh, maybe a little insecure. They want to be part of the group. So someone says something and they say the same thing. Um, and you kn- you sometimes look at their faces and you know that they don't necessarily believe this, but they feel that it. they don't want to be left out and they don't want to look bad and they don't want to look stupid. And so saying something that, has been agreed upon or someone who's the strongest personality in the class says they will piggyback on that. And I find it very insidious. And the point is to make the classroom into a place. And I think when people say a safe space and they make fun of that, I understand it as being a place where people feel safe enough to say what they think and not do group talk. Because not only is it uh, repressive of the self, but I think it can also uh, cause students to fail to develop themselves as speakers and fail to develop their vocabulary. Even there, you know, we see such a decline in eloquence, which is a word I oh. like, in this society now. And I think it's because people don't exercise their originality of thought.
0: Uh, in in the book, uh, l- l- last question as we as we run out of time. You, you go into, you know, the history of, of literature and, and uh, conversation and education. But uh, let me ask you first, your own experience as a young woman in France. What did that teach you about conversation?
1: I had a wonderful experience in France right after college. Um, and I think many people have had this. Um, I don't know if it's as frequent now as it was, well, decades ago, but the French have an ability. I mean, they value talk. They have a centralized education, s- educational system so that they have all read the same great works, um, mm-hmm. and they value those works. I mean, they start from a young age reading the, the classics of Frank... French literature and learning French history but their love of conversation and you know cafe culture which is so much a part of the French, uh, even the design of Paris of course is there for you to sit and unfortunately I also did smoke cigarettes when I was there which I don't do anymore but to sit and drink coffee and eat a croissant and smoke a cigarette then and speak to people about Everything, I mean, often very uh, interesting, deep subjects. You know, the meaning of life, uh, why we're here, what we want out of life, what kind of partner we want. Those sorts of questions uh, I learned to talk about, I feel, in France. I mean, I obviously had an inclination, but the French were particularly eager to support that kind of conversation.
0: Yeah. The book is Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation. Professor Cohen, thank you for joining us.
1: And thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.